This holiday season, pay tribute to the people who fought for our freedom to celebrate. Featuring the largest American flag in the region, Spirit Park is now open at National Harbor, honoring active duty military and veterans. Take some time this holiday to remember, offer gratitude, and be inspired by the sacrifices of our service men and women who make our way of life possible. Plan your visit at nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. That's nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. Yeah, it's called conversations with Jeff, not screaming matches. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 you and I do not agree on Calvinism, but look how nice we are to each other. I think it's going to really shock a lot of people, thrill a lot of people. A lot of people are going to have to do some soul searching. It's like you know what? What are you doing? You're spending all your time trying to destroy another Christian because you don't understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. When you should be out there winning people for Jesus, right? Thank you for the job you're doing. Thanks for being willing to address these kind of issues. They're vital to the church. I feel sorry for what's coming your way, but God bless you, man. It's it's a good, healthy conversation, and, and let's keep growing together in the Lord. People won't change unless they hear the truth, though. And so we need to know the truth, uh, speak the truth. And then the last one I would say is that we need to stay in the truth, uh, no matter what the consequences are. Okay, everybody, welcome to Conversations with Jeff. Um, glad you guys are all tuning in. Uh, really excited about today, about today's guest. But before we get to the actual conversation, wanted to remind you all, uh, we've got our upcoming, uh, our first online conference that the GK is putting on called Destroy Social Justice. We're going to be putting that on. Uh, this actually coming up weekend, we've got a great lineup. We've got everybody from uh, Tom Littleton, myself, uh, Ken Peters, Mike Spaulding, um, Sam Jones, Patrick White, all the GK guys. Uh, we, we're also, and you guys are getting the exclusive uh, first uh, here of this, the announcement of this, but we're um, adding Greg Locke onto the conference as well. He's going to be giving the closing to the entire conference. So again, we're doing the Destroy Social Justice Conference, breaking down uh, in depth all of the issues that are going on. Uh, you guys can go to gatekeepersonline.com slash destroy social justice. You can register there. Use code Jeff for $5 off the registration. Um, the other cool thing is that for all of you guys that are members of our plugged in program, you guys can actually get free access to it. So that's available as well for you guys as well. So again, gatekeepersonline.com slash destroy social justice. Head on over there, get registered and all that cool stuff. Um, today I'm really excited about our guest. Uh, we're bringing on Bobby Lopez. Uh, to the podcast. I first met him at the Stand Against Marxism conference that was in Des Moines, Iowa. Um, and mm-hmm. he gave a really good talk and I really enjoyed it. And I'm really glad that we could sit down with you, Bobby, and have a conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's fun to be on with you. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, um, you know, what's been. And, and you're from California, right? Yes. You're in my old stopping ground. Yes. Okay. Out, out, right. out, out in Orange County, West Coast, out by the ocean, all, all the good yeah. stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, but yeah, I'm, right. I'm, I'm glad we could do this because uh, I know that there's been, I mean, I know that your story is a really amazing story of how God's really worked in your life and that sort of thing. But then also, 
you know, kind of been in, you know, the, the news within a lot of like the discernment world and that sort of thing with dealing with a lot of the stuff that's going on with the SBC and the seminary and all that right. kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, so this latest uh, issue that I kind of want to start out with with talking to you about was kind of what's happened with uh, you and the Southwestern uh, is it Theological Seminary that was going on. Right. And uh, yeah. what kind of transpired there? Because I feel like there's been like a lot of different things that have been put out there about what happened. But what actually happened with that whole scenario? Well, basically, I was teaching there, and my area of expertise is in English and classics, so all of the great books, and I teach in Greek and Latin and literature, and I was doing that, but because I do have this personal testimony where I, I was raised in a gay home, and I uh, came out of homosexuality, and I survived sex abuse in the gay community, and I try to be a spokesperson for that, and I, I was often called by churches ministries or conservative publications to give my testimony or to write or to give opinions on it. And I was put in leadership positions where I was fighting for that cause. And once there was a change in leadership at Southwestern and the Greenway administration came in, they developed a, a lot of anxiety and hostility surrounding that work that I was doing. And so they were telling me more and more uh, you should withdraw from this conference. You should really limit how much you talk about these issues about sex abuse in the same-sex community. Don't put in resolutions to the Southern Baptist Convention. And then it really reached a critical point in the summer of 2019 because at that point then they were telling me basically not to talk to reporters. So uh, they were saying if a, you know they they put out a blanket statement to everybody in the seminary that if they got media requests, that they were supposed to forward those to Colby Adams, who uh, came on board with the new administration, and that he was going to decide whether people would go forward with interviews with the press. Now, this made me very uncomfortable. This is not something in my 20 years of teaching at the university level that I have ever seen as appropriate a university telling you who you can talk to in the press or not. I tried to go along with it, but then uh, they they seemed to um, really uh, pick uh, fights with me over any kind of public statements that I made. And so I had actually even gotten off of social media, and I was really trying to avoid contact with the, with the press, but then there came a certain point where it was clear that not only did they not want me to talk to the press, they didn't want me to tell anybody in the journal, the, they didn't want me to tell outside journalists or editors that they were censoring me. They actually asked me to, in a sense, not give an honest answer as to why I would not give interviews. Um, and then at that point, I also found that if I wrote things that they wanted that to be under their approval process, and they basically didn't want me to write about any of it. So I wrote an essay uh, for American Thinker about abuse in the same-sex context and about why the LGBT issue is so closely linked to the abuse issue and, and why the church needs to take that seriously. And I sent that. It got accepted. And then I notified my dean and the administration that it was going to run. And then they called me in, and it got very serious. The dean said basically – uh, look, at this point, you know, we've had it up to here. We're, we're tired of dealing with you and this issue. 
if you're going to continue to, to fight on this issue, you can't work here. And at that point, I really felt the Holy Spirit next to me. And I, I just knew that this is the battleground. This is, I'm being tested. You know, I'm really being tested. They had pushed and pushed and pushed. And at that point, I said, you know, I have done everything under Matthew 18 and under Romans 13 that I could possibly do to be respectful and to follow the proper procedures. But what you are asking me to do is evil, and I'm not going to go along with it. And I said, I'm not going to quit, so you're going to have to make up your mind. And then at that point, I was brought into the provost's office, and the provost, he packaged it in other terms, but basically he said, if you're not going to allow us to tell you what you can publish, where you can publish, then you're going to have to, you can't be here. And uh, so I was, I was fired two months later. Now, they did not, they wanted to claim that my firing had nothing to do with the homosexuality issue. They wanted to claim that it had nothing to do uh, with my uh, public advocacy work. They said that it was just, I was a difficult employee and that they had program changes. But of course, that I, I had recordings of what happened. And it's clear that they were talking to me about my public advocacy work in the area of same-sex abuse, that they were not calling me in to talk to me about these other issues. Right. You know, and, and the interesting thing about that is I feel like like with your story and a lot of the stuff that you're talking about, a lot of the kind of shutting down the conversation we really see out in the secular world. But we often don't think about this as also like like to me, this is like God working in your life and other people's lives in order to bring salvation, bring people out of abuse, mm -hmm. things like that. It's like why would Christians be trying to shut down this conversation? Well, I think that's the big question, and I have an answer to it. I wanted to uh, delay stating my understanding of it for a long time because I wanted to think the best of these people. The Southern Baptist Convention is a huge denomination. These are men who have a lot of respect. People look up to them, and it's scary going up against them, but the basic bottom line is they are not being motivated by what is biblical. They're not serving the kingdom. They're not serving the Southern Baptist Convention. They are serving the interests of the people in their group of power brokers. And that's what's gone wrong with the Southern Baptist Convention. You will hear a lot of discussion about whether the SBC has gone too conservative or too pro-Trump or whether it's gone too liberal with the social justice movement. And there are cases to be made uh, in either of those directions. But the bottom line is that the people who are in charge of the Southern Baptist Convention are acting as if this whole convention and all the churches and the seminaries belong to them. And they have seem to have gotten some kind of papal infallibility complex where they think that if they are doing things and running things in a way to protect their own position, that somehow they are by default defending Christ's kingdom. And that is not the case. It is very easy to get deluded when you are in a position of power and to inflate your own importance and to exaggerate how closely you are aligned with God and to basically become a, 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 a misguided shepherd. I don't want to say a false shepherd, but there's a lot of signs here that these people are not really behaving like the true shepherd in John 10. You know, when Jesus says, the hireling will flee when the wolf comes for the flock, but the, the true shepherd stays and fights. I don't see them at all gathering force to fight off the threat to their flock that is posed by these social justice movements. The LGBT movement is one of it. So is this very misguided understanding of race. Uh, so all of these things where the people are encouraged to 
wrap up their church world with money from the federal government, which is going to bring all of this uh, political influence in there. And it's it's inappropriate and it's wrong. Uh, but I think that that's where we're at. We're, we're watching the Southern Baptist Convention fall apart because the people at the top have failed. The, the, all of the leadership has failed. I have no problem saying that. You know, it's it's a total failure of leadership. There were a group of people who got into power. They put their friends in other positions of power. They lost sight. If they ever had a motive, if they were ever driven by a desire to serve the gospel and to be true to the flocks that they were called to shepherd, that was lost a long time ago. And at this point, they're running on fumes and empty rhetoric. But ultimately, you have leaders who are making decisions to protect their own power and their own money and their own influence, and they're not doing things to protect the flock. So, of course, you have a lobby that is very lucrative, like the gay lobby that has a lot of money and then can introduce you to a lot of people and open a lot of doors. And so as these people in power who are so interested in preserving their own position uh, see that if they move things in a direction that is appetizing towards the gay lobby – we're going to get good things out of it. And that's basically how this all happened. So, yeah. Well, you know, and, and I think it's one of those things as well is that, and I always say this, I always call them like the evangelical elite to a certain degree because I feel like they're getting in their own little bubbles and they're making decisions because they're only talking to other people that are also in their own little bubble. They're not actually out oftentimes in the real world, in the real world. Mm-hmm. And with a lot of like the local churches, they're actually dealing with the repercussions of what they're saying. They're just looking at, what's best for us in our own little circle and keep mm-hmm. keeping us in power and in control to a certain right. degree. And that's kind of the dangerous thing is when you do have a, a certain level of like elitism that's going on, which I think mm-hmm. we're really seeing with the SBC, like we're seeing the implosion that's happening because of it. It's almost a civil war going on with the SBC. Well, it's, it's scary. I, I feel honored by God that I, I mean, how many people get the opportunity to be tested that way? <laughs> You know, I mean, that's something that I will hang on to for the rest of my life. The Lord put me in a position where I was given a choice. Keep your job with the SBC or um, stay true to the gospel. And, and, and God gave me that test and I passed the test. So I feel so honored and so grateful that God gave me that opportunity because a lot of people dream of having that choice at some point and being able to do it and say that you did it. So I feel blessed. In that regard, but I think that what's happening is I'm, I got a front seat to this very historic moment where the SBC is falling apart. And I've gotten to know a lot of the personalities as people, and it's ugly. And that's all I can tell you. It's I, I can look at the history of the Reformation with a whole different eye, having been through what I've been through over the last 10 years or so in the Christian world. We're living through a very similar time. I think one of the differences uh, one of the differences is that during Luther's time, the Reformation meant there was a splintering. People were peeling away from different denominations and, and they were dividing because they had to divide to be able to get to a discernment, to get to the truth. Um, but this time around, I think this great uh, um, shakeup, this great uh, um, turbulence that's happening in the Christian world is going to be the opposite. I think what you're going to have is you're going to have the remnants from many denominations all telling the same story about how their leadership failed them, and they're going to be actually reuniting. You know, I feel now, if I sit down with somebody from the Assemblies of God, if I sit down with a Catholic, 
if I sit down with someone who is a Presbyterian, um, from all of those different denominations, we may have theological differences, but all of us have the same story to tell, which is that the leadership became corrupt and uh, American Christianity had a big falling away and and now we have to fight and we have to, to, to gather forces to be able to resist this corruption because ultimately it's the kingdom that is under threat. And, you know, now is a time that you either have to stand up and be counted and, and stand in the gap or else go when you meet your maker and say, I didn't defend you. I was too scared and I was too ashamed to stand up for you. And these people were too powerful. So I, I decided not to stand up to you. I, mean, I don't want to say that to to the Lord when I, do you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, I wouldn't want to say that. <clears throat> but, <clears throat> but that's the problem that we're facing. I think the Orlando Convention this year is going to be enormous. Um, and, and I think the SBC is where you can see this religious uh, upheaval in, in the starkest colors because the missions have a huge problem, the domestic missions, the church planning. There's a lot of corruption questions there. The international missions are also, I mean, they pulled out of Latin America. People don't realize this uh, 15 years ago, and they left all of those countries that were struggling, uh, and then they sent missions out to very specific countries. And there's all these questions as to why they made these decisions. It's never been clear. It's never been justified. Every time they do things like this, they have mass firings, and they make everybody sign non-disclosure agreements. So, I mean, missions is a problem. The seminaries, as I'm sure you have probably followed, Jeff, yep, right? Yep. The seminaries are, are, are absolutely uh, a cesspool at this point. They have fallen apart. Southwestern is gone. Southern is gone. Southeastern is gone. Um, you know, we, we have to face a future where it's, it's going to be a question of how are we going to clean things up and to be able to rescue what we can of the assets so that the small churches all across the Southern Baptist Convention that gave their tithes and gave, you know, in many cases, you know, you have little old ladies who are giving just, you know, it's like in the Bible, but the, the last two pennies that they had, you know, they gave that money into the Southern Baptist Convention and all of those assets, that real estate and the holdings, all of that now is um, it's being held hostage. So I think uh, I would say watch the Orlando Convention because it's going to be huge. The, the question of who's going to be the next president, um, you know, which we can talk about, that's going to be a huge issue. And the question is whether these groups like the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, the seminary presidents, the mission board presidents, the executive committee, whether they're going to be able to get up and give presentations and and, and quell the audience because now there has to be a groundswell of people who are willing to go to the convention and stand up and scream and shout and, and, and force these people in power to answer your questions. Because as I don't know if you followed over the last week, but the, what their typical response of the people in power in the Southern Baptist convention is just to not answer questions. Yeah. It's, 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 it's very, you know? it's very typical with, with anybody really, really in power. It's like to a certain degree, it's like if, if they don't want people talking about it, they just, they, they just shut up instead of actually answering honestly. And, and I feel like that's part of the problem with what's going on in the church today right now in general mm-hmm. is that right. a, a lot of the leaders are not willing to be open and transparent and actually have open conversations. So that way the rest of us that aren't in like visible leadership or anything along those lines. That way we can actually hear both sides of the argument and we can make up our own minds. Mm-hmm. Cause I feel like that was, that was one of my criticisms of everything that was going on with, uh, like, uh, like the gospel coalition and the shepherds conference and that whole fiasco that went down is that 
it was all these backdoor meetings and people talking behind the scenes and them telling us, let's just wait and see what happens years down the road after they talk about it. And it's like, why can't we just get them on stage, have an open and honest debate and discussion over social justice or socialism or whatever it is that's infiltrating mm-hmm. into the church, and right. then we can make up our own minds instead of this these backdoor meetings and deals and agreements. It just it just, just doesn't sit well to me at all. No, it shouldn't sit well to you. And I think it would be one thing if they be- behaved this way and didn't try to re- cloak everything in the gospel. But I think it is much more wicked than that because they, they quote Romans 13, they quote Matthew 18, they quote 1 Peter 5 and 1 Timothy 5. They try to say that it's somehow biblical for them to to do all these things behind closed doors and that it's unbiblical for us to ask questions. It's unbiblical for us to hold people accountable. You know, I submitted resolutions in 2018 and 2019 to the Southern Baptist Convention. They were very um, relevant resolutions. The first one was about counseling for people with same-sex attraction. The second one was about the abuse crisis and, and how to protect whistleblowers in the Southern Baptist Convention. These are really important issues. They were blown off. There were no resolutions in the in the areas that I had written about that were brought before the floor. So I followed the process. But ultimately, what you had was you had administrators and people in power calling me in and saying, you know, as your elder, as your as the person who is in authority over you, I just don't want you to do that. And so it's going to be unbiblical because you're going to be in rebellion somehow if you don't do what I tell you to do. That's sick. It is sick that you're going to distort the gospel um, in, in such a way to, to get your way and to promote secrecy and to promote corruption and nepotism and a conflict of interest and all these things that you can look at very clearly uh, are not biblical. I mean, if you read the Proverbs, if you read Psalms, if you read Job, there are many statements about uh, people who use institutional procedures to oppress others. Jesus Christ himself said, look at the way that the Gentiles act. They dominate one another in the institutions. We are not to run our institutions that way. Jesus Christ said that. Yep. You know, Jesus Christ said, you know, they devour widows' houses and they have long prayers just for show. Beware the people who like the long tassels and the greetings in the marketplace and the positions of honor. Everything that Jesus said leads us to say we, that, that things should not be run the way that they're run. And, and I think it's the good sign, Jeff, is that over the last— Two weeks, I have seen such an inspiring sign that there are lots of people who are fed up and who are not afraid to say it now. You know, I mean, I think a year ago, many people um, who are now vocal would never say anything to cross Albert Mueller. Yeah, they would they, they, they would be too afraid. You know, he was this sacred cow. There were all these friendships at stake. But now I think people have seen that we we can't prioritize those friendships or those loyalties and and we can't let ourselves be under obligation to these people or to want to hang on to our jobs by them giving us favors because all of that will lead us to ultimately undermine the gospel and and what we're called to do in these denominations yeah no it's it's very true and i I think you know i think that you know, and I talked about this at the Standing Against Marxism conference as well, but there's a lot of parallels between what Jesus was confronting with the Pharisees, what the Catholic ch- mm-hmm. Church was confronting, the reformers were confronting with the Catholic Church, and what we're seeing right now in the evangelical world. 
is you have these guys that are in power. They're holding on to the power. They're using their power to intimidate people that may be dissenters, you know, intimidating people that disagree with them. And they're using that. And for the longest time, they've been successful at silencing opposition. And I think right now it's just gotten to the point to where it's so blatant. It's so obvious. And I think even in your example where they're literally telling you, stop telling your story, stop sharing, stop talking about like, abuse child abuse even like stop talking about this kind of stuff because, right you know because it doesn't sit yeah. well with us it's like at a certain point people aren't gonna yeah keep quiet well yeah and i i can tell you you know sitting in there as someone who survived 15 years of abuse in the gay community and and i know how much abuse goes on not just of children but between adults it's, there's so much abuse and mistreatment, um, and the ideology contributes to it. Having seen all that, to be called into an office and told to someone, well, you know, if you want to keep teaching this job where you, you teach Homer and, and Aristotle to undergraduate students, you just can't talk about that anymore. When the Southern Baptist Convention is in the middle of this huge firestorm over sex abuse, I, I can't convey to you the depth of, of angst that I felt. I mean, I really felt so much distress, and I tried so hard. I prayed and prayed and prayed to to be charitable and to be winsome and to be all these things. But ultimately, when you are confronted with evil on that scale, because that, and I said that in the meeting with the dean, you can hear it on the tape because we released the tapes and the transcripts. I said, "This is evil. You're you're telling me I know that there is a same-sex abuse problem." And I know that the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission is real, not addressing it, whether it's deliberate or whether it's by chance. I, it looks to me like it's probably more deliberate than anything else. But they want to make the whole abuse issue an issue about sexism and about mistreatment of women because they have all of these female spokespeople that they can get a lot of uh, influence with, attraction with, right? But they did not want to deal with the gay abuse issue in the Southern Baptist Convention, which is huge. Um, you know, I said, I, I, I can't bow down to this. I'm sorry. I, I will not remain silent. And, and I don't feel bad that I went public because I told my dean that I was going to basically stand up to it and I wouldn't be silent. So um, but that's the scale that we're dealing with there. I mean, the, the idea that you are going to go to the public and this is the case of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention they saw all of these reports of sex abuse that came out in the Houston Chronicle, and their response was to change the topic of their conference and to have all of these famous speakers like Beth Moore and uh, Rachel Hollander all come out and speak about sex abuse and then threaten me to because I had put in a resolution about how to protect whistleblowers and then they, you know, they're, they're assisting in getting me fired while they're presenting to the public this face that they're doing all this work to protect people from sex abuse. It, it's, it's just unconscionable. I, mean, I think we're, we're reaching a level where it, it is as bad as Martin Luther and the Catholic Church. I can't say that it's, it's lighter or, or better than that situation because you're talking about religious elites that are so deep in the corruption and that just keep on doubling down. You know, I don't know if you've ever, when you look at the history of those de' Medici popes and the Borgia popes, I mean, have you ever wondered what was going through their mind 
as Luther was, you know, storming across Central Europe, why did they double down? Why did they keep on with the same corruption? And now we're seeing it. You know, I used to always wonder that when I studied uh, about Martin Luther, I used to wonder why is it that the Renaissance popes didn't just reform or, or back down? But I think that when you have these religious um, groups of people who are in power, um, this is what happens. I mean, they can become incredibly corrupt. Yeah, well, that, that's that's crazy to think too, is because like even like looking back at at Martin Luther and a lot of the things that he was confronting, the things that he was confronting, it's not like they were like uh, anything out of the box or crazy. Like it, it was literally like spiritual abuse by the the priests that over the people for financial gain is really what a lot of it was. It's like that shouldn't right. be something that would be too crazy to say. Okay, we should tone that down a little bit. And I feel like it's the same thing here with the SBC. Is it's like you're talking literally talking about abuse, and it's like. That shouldn't be something where they're like, okay, you know, like, okay, we're, we're just going to ignore that. It should be something like, okay, we're going to tone that back. We're going to take this seriously. We're going to deal with this because we want to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that to a certain degree, I think now what we're seeing is they're just holding on to power as much as they mm-hmm. can. And they're doing they're, – they're silencing people like you that are coming out and telling the truth as opposed mm-hmm. to embracing you and taking out the people that are actually – doing the abuse and that's just right. a crazy thing in my mind i just again i just don't understand what they're thinking well i because whatever is driving them there you can see that the motives have a big problem with it because of uh the inconsistency and in how they apply it you know i don't know if you followed in the last couple of weeks but Paige patterson was uh, given an opportunity to speak at a small church in florida and you had susan cadone and all of these famous people, Rachel Den Hollander, Beth Moore, coming out and expressing outrage. Rachel Den Hollander is a good example, and I, 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 I want to be respectful to her because she's a fellow survivor of sex abuse. But my question to her is, what are you thinking? You know, your husband is studying for Al Mohler. Al Mohler had to apologize for his role in the cover-up of the Sovereign Grace Ministries abuse. Uh, you know, when C.J. C.J. Mahaney, his friend, was involved. He apologized. Why aren't they calling for him to step down from his job? This was less than a year after Paige Patterson was driven from his job. Paige Patterson apologized for not dealing with the sexual abuse case uh, as sensitively as he should have in uh, the past. But, um, you know, they 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 still want to uh, go after Paige Patterson everywhere while they're leaving El Moeller sitting there in, in his office in Southern Seminary, you know, and he admitted in the pages of the Houston Chronicle that he did not handle the abuse case in Sovereign Grace Ministries well. I don't think it's enough to apologize if you yourself, in the case of Albert Mueller, went after Paige Patterson. I mean, he wrote that article saying that it was the wrath of God pouring out in the Southern Baptist Convention. I mean, you should apply to yourself what the same standards that you apply to other people, because the Lord said he doesn't like unequal weights and measures. He doesn't like one person getting a different, you know, uh, standard of justice as, as someone else. And so um, I think that it is at that level that you're talking about, of uh, the, the Renaissance and Reformation era, because when you are talking about large numbers of people uh, who have been given um, a, a distorted theology and who have been told that it was wrong for them to question elders, I know many, many people who were in uh, churches um, and who were told that when they came forward and questioned uh, people about something that happened that was abusive, 
that they were the problem. They were disciplined and they were cast out of the churches. And that's the kind of thing that I think liberals and conservatives can agree on. When I read pulpit and pen, as controversial as they are, I can see common ground between when they deal with cases where we have uncovered abuse in churches and the left-wing people, because they have a common uh, concern, which is that kind of mistreatment in churches, because it's anti-biblical. But the people who are in control of the Southern Baptist Convention, they don't treat this as common ground. They treat it as who is going to be allied to them and who is going to protect their networks of power and who is going to keep them in a position of maximum influence. And they systematically go out like the way I was rooted out you know, uh, I was called in and at the beginning it was seen as a, a kind of a friendly conversation. We're just going to lunch. Um, I'm not telling you that you have to do this, but it would be a great idea if you stop talking about this. And then it progressively gets more and more until they just put the cards on the table and they're like, look, you either stop doing this or you're fired. You know, that that's how they operate. And it's it's not biblical. It's not biblical. It's, it's a huge crisis. And for the largest Protestant denomination to operate like this, I mean, this is a huge crisis for the whole country. No, it, it really is. And the, and the thing is, like, kind of as you're describing a lot of this, too, I'm just getting yeah. this image in my head, the parallels between how the SBC leadership are behaving, and in all reality, the leadership of a lot of different denominations, and right. the politicians in Washington, D.C., and the political side of things, the parallels mm-hmm. there are uncanny. I mean, it's almost it's almost identical in how, like, for example, you were you were citing uh, Paige Patterson and how he's the scapegoat of everybody. Same thing kind of happens in the political world. It's like they'll they'll tag on one person, look at look to destroy them, and say, look how awful that guy is, while you're doing the exact same thing that that guy did. But it's just a way right. of shifting attention onto that one person, and then mm-hmm. that way people don't look at you. And that's the crazy thing, right? Well, yeah, and I, in some ways. Uh, I think that Washington and the the evangelical elites are acting this way because they are reading from the same playbook. I think they're drawn from the same elites. They often went to the same schools. Uh, They they have a lot of common ties. They're friends with each other. Obviously, there were – I remember when WikiLeaks released a lot of – was it WikiLeaks or was it Anonymous? Do you remember when they they hacked into the DNC – Emails. I looked at the ones where they mentioned the Southern Baptist Convention, and it was fascinating to me how much the Hillary Clinton campaign was working with some people who were planted deep in the SBC. And at one point, somebody who was deeply within the SBC of Kentucky was advising the Hillary Clinton campaign about how to smear uh, Bernie Sanders to the people, the Southern Baptist world. And so you had consultation between the Washington elites and the evangelical elites, that really, this is this is a crisis. This should never get to be this point, because you should, if you have been put in a position of power in a Christian denomination, that means that you have been given this incredibly important responsibility to tend to your flock, and you should not abuse that. You know, uh, if you read the prophet Zechariah, for instance, there's that great line, I think it's in the 10th chapter of Zechariah, where the Lord says, my, my anger burns hot against the shepherds because they, they give false prophecies. They, they tell people empty dreams and false promises, and they're abusing my flock. Um, and so I, I do think that um, you, you mentioned the – I think when you spoke in Iowa, you mentioned the woes in Matthew yeah. 23, didn't you? Yep. yep. I remember I went, that I speech that you gave. Yeah, and I mean, don't you think that now is the time for that kind of language? Yeah. 
what do you think? I, I don't think this is the time to sit down and have a nice civil conversation. We've tried that. Yeah. For, for years, know? we've tried that. Yeah, right. And I know I have tried to follow through all of the process. I followed Matthew 18. I brought witnesses to one of the meetings with the administration. I brought two pastors with me because I wanted to follow Matthew 18. And look, there's a certain point where you have to call a Pharisee a Pharisee. You yeah. know, that the, these guys are not doing their job and and uh, we need a big shakeup. So. Yeah. No, no, we, we, re- we really do. And again, it, it, it comes down to like Jesus, when he confronted the Pharisees, like the, the Pharisees, they were obviously, they were abusing their followers, but it wasn't to this magnitude when you think about it. I mean, they, they were hypocrites. They were, right. you know, putting heavy burdens on people's shoulders, but they weren't dealing with like physical, like sexual abuse. They weren't dealing right. with the things of this magnitude that, that just like destroy people. And it's like, right. I mean, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, I saw when um, Adam Greenway came in and he assumed the presidency of Southwestern. Uh, it was February 27th of 2019. They swore him in as president. And by uh, mid-April, so it was just basically a, a month and a half later, uh, he fired uh, a fourth of the faculty. And the way he did it was on a scale. I never saw the Pharisees do, do things that were this vicious. You know, there were, circul- there were rumors circulating that there was going to be a lot of layoffs, but they wouldn't tell us who. They wouldn't tell us how many. They called us in for this big uh, dinner that was a faculty trustee appreciation dinner where they had us bring our spouses and they, they slathered us up with praise and patting us on the back for two hours or two or three hours for dinner with the trustees there smiling in our faces. We all knew that some of us were going to get fired. And then the next day at 4 PM, we were called into a conference room and told that there was going to be a lot of firings and they still wouldn't tell us who was fired they just said that those of you who are going to be fired, check your email inboxes because sometime in the next couple of hours, you're going to get an email saying that you have to go report uh, to a meeting at the provost's office. I mean, it was so – to me, that shows such contempt for people. It shows such um, uh, inhumanity. You know, my wife, when she, she went to the trustee appreciation dinner and she came home and she said, these people are awful. This is just, she said, this is something that we never even saw in the liberal, secular university world where we worked for many years. I never saw that kind of behavior at California State University. Yeah. Yeah, you know, they would never do something this sick. It, it's, it's sick, Jeff. There, there's a sickness in it. And you're right. I don't, when I look at the, the Pharisees and when Jesus was um, really you know, going after the Pharisees, I don't see how parts where they oppressed people to that scale. Obviously, they were very threatened by Jesus and they conspired, you know, and, and his death. I mean, that that happened. Right. Uh, and, and that but I in, in terms of their overall management of the church, um, I, it, it, you're right. I mean, Jesus calls them to account for much less than what we what we're seeing now in yep. the denomination. And with much stronger language than pretty much anybody is using against the elites today as well. I mean like he he went after them hard. John the Baptist went after them hard. I think yes. at a certain point we can begin to take cues and it's it, to me that doesn't justify being a jerk. Doesn't it doesn't justify like sinning in the sense of being, you know, unrighteously angered. But at the same time, Jesus went in and he overturned tables. He caused a ruckus. And I think and I think at right. a certain point, 
he was doing it for way less than what's happening here. And I think the Pharisees were very passive aggressive in how they were handling, mm-hmm. how they were dealing with uh, the nation right. of Israel and their followers and that sort of thing. Whereas the leadership now in the evangelical world, they're not just passive aggressive. They're like full on, like to your face, like public even, even though to the public as well, they're trying to perceive themselves as, oh, we're righteous. We're making the right godly decisions and things like that. And you're just mm-hmm. like, how how do you think you're going to get away with this when you're doing this so obviously for everybody to see? Well, and you look at something like Karen Swallow Pryor and Beth Moore, some of these people who play the victim constantly. You look at how Karen Swallow Pryor started a petition against Paige Patterson and uh, got all these people to sign the statement. She didn't have access to any information. I mean, what, where would she have gotten the inside information to sort through all that, to know whether there was an assault, to know, I mean, it, 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 was, it was impossible for her to really have all the information available to her. She was a fellow uh, reporting to Russell Moore, right, who's a, 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 another entity head in the same denomination, right? It, it, you look at that, and absolutely, that is atrocious behavior. You know, uh, every time I see somebody come on and say, no, don't be mean to Karen Swallow Pryor. Don't be mean to Beth Moore. These are people who engaged. I mean, if you just look at how they handled the Paige Patterson firing, in the absence of any kind of body of reliable information with many conflicts of interest that are glaring, like flashing red lights to see, they ran forward and, and sought to destroy people's lives. You should not treat that as, oh, they're, they're helpless victims. You know, th- these are very, very uh, vicious behaviors, and, and you've got to be able to call them out uh, that way. Um, so I, I agree with that. I notice that a lot of times pulpit and pen is often, uh, you know, they're acutely attacked for uh, being too vicious. And, you know, I've been on the receiving end of some people who are part of that circle. I know what it's like to get attacked, but you know what? I, whatever, I defend myself, I stick up for it, you know, and in in many cases they do apologize if you do show them that they're wrong or whatever. Um, But I, I think that ultimately we don't have a crisis of a lack of civility. I think we have a, a, a crisis of people not holding people to account and not doing what Paul told us to do. Paul said that you should not partner with the unrighteous, but you should expose them. You, you don't get involve yourself with the acts of darkness. Jesus Christ said, whatever is whispered to you, you should shout on the rooftops. So I do not feel bad about tape recording the conversations that I have with the administration and putting them online for everyone to see, because that Jesus Christ said, you know, you, we're not going to, you shouldn't leave things in this case where everyone does things off the radar in, under the cover of darkness. That's not Christian. Light brings, you know, um, goodness and yeah. darkness breeds sin. So, yeah, well, you know, like, you know, like, like you were mentioning pulpit and pin and, you know, I've had my run-ins with, with pulpit and pin and JD. I mean, you know, at the yeah, same time, you have, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, they've got, they've got four articles on there that are negative on me and you know, that's, it's, it's life. I mean, at the same time, I've yeah. also, I've also talked to JD yeah. on the phone and we, we've talked about some different, different things. I met him in person at the Stand Against Marxism conference. It's like, to me, I right. feel like Pulpit and Pin is one of those things where, like, they can be off on certain things, but then when they're right, they're spot on right. And then they, I, I don't think that their issue as much as, like, the civility of things as much as it is just making sure that they're accurate all the time versus just some of the time. Um, right. and, and I think they get written off at times because, because of their tone. And 
I don't think quite as much it's the tone issue as much as it is just let's just make sure that we're right all the time, if that makes sense. Right. No, it's true. It's true. Although I will say that a lot of people read them. Oh, yeah. A lot of people read them because when everybody else was playing nice, nice and acting like this was a tea party, they were out there asking the tough questions. And you're, you're right. They they shoot a little bit too far sometimes. And, and there's definitely been stuff that's been up there that I think to myself, oh, I'm not sure if that I, I mean, it burned when they reposted something that I had written maybe a year earlier. Um, they reposted it and I asked them to take it down and they were like, no. You know, so we, you know, we have our moments, uh, where, you know, we have those tough things, but I think that part of it is that people with that personality we need in this fight, we need people who take risks, who, who go forward. I mean, you think about the book of numbers, for instance, you know, when, when the spies go in and, you know, it was Joshua who came back and said, we can win this. And then the other ones were all saying, no, we can't, we should be, we should be timid, you know, because they're, they're too strong. You know, we're going to lose. Uh, I think that you need some of those bold risk takers, even if they they make mistakes, as long as uh, they have a pattern of coming to repentance or of, of, of saying, yes, I got this wrong or whatever. But we need those on that uh, uh, in this fight, because it, the Bible does emphasize quite a bit being courageous and not being afraid, you know, be mm-hmm. courageous and be strong. Um, uh, right now in my uh, daily cycles, I just finished Exodus. And I'm in First Samuel, and uh, and then I'm reading Matthew. You know, I, I try to read the Bible every year. You know, I go through my cycles like everyone else. But it's it's striking to me in the histories how much courage and boldness and risk taking is important. You know, that you can't just have uh, people who are defending the gospel who are timid. And uh, so because of that, I think some some of those sites. Are they, they have served an important purpose, even if you know they go too far and it stings. Uh, I remember when there was one of the people in that circle who he posted something saying that I uh, I supported communism or something like that, like that I <laughs> I hated capitalism and uh, or objectivism or something like that. And I remember it just it burned. But you know, then I met the person face to face, and I just it just dissipated because I thought to myself, you know, this is someone who's idealistic, who has you know I can take a couple slings and arrows as long as I defend myself and, you know, Mm -hmm. we can go forward because we're fighting for something much bigger than any of our individual feelings being hurt right now. I mean, we're really fighting for the kingdom and it's a lot at stake. It's a lot at stake. Oh yeah, for sure. You know, and and the one thing, and I don't want to keep coming back to pulpit and panner, but I want to say one, one thing, one thing about JD, about JD Hall that I will say is since this whole social justice thing has really come to the forefront, he's, he's, he's been one of the most sane, consistent, voices against this movement and the push left that's been happening within the evangelical world, even going so far as to call out friends. And that's something that I do respect about the guy because he's, he's been willing to cross friends in order to confront truth. Whereas a lot of people haven't been, haven't been willing to do that. So I just wanted to throw that out as well. Well, and I have to be full disclosure. I envy JD because when I heard him speak at the stand against Marxism conference, Gosh, that guy can give a speech. I just thought he gave. I I just thought he is so good. If you put him in a microphone, because he just he'll go and he'll just run, and he's a natural. And you know he has the crowd laughing. He has you know everyone in the palm of his hand. I mean, he definitely has a gift in that way. And I was impressed that he took on the Super Bowl. I don't know if it was him, but somebody on pulpit and pen. They took on the Super Bowl, which I, I was happy about because a lot of Christian 
men I know who are always talking about how we have to defend Christian masculinity, that's one of those lines they won't cross. They won't criticize churches for having Super Bowl parties uh, and stuff like that. And, and you know, they 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 were consistent. They were like, you shouldn't do that. You know, even if that's going to anger some of their pro-masculinity allies, uh, they do, like you say, they take on friends. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, yeah. but I, I think as we're kind of like dealing with like a lot of this, like what we're talking about, I think we need more, like you were saying too, we need more bold voices. We need more people yeah. that are willing to get out there and not be afraid of the repercussions. And I, mm-hmm. and I think that if, if we can realize that it's okay if you get fired, it sucks, but it's okay if you get <laughs> fired for the wrong reason, yeah. right? It's okay right. if you don't get invited to speak at the conferences. It's okay. All this kind of there's there are other options. There are there are ways. And also, for, to me, I think if you're doing the right thing, God will provide, and He's going to honor yeah. the fact that you are obedient and you're willing to take a stand for truth and not compromise mm-hmm. just for let's say a financial reason or to get on the conference circuit or whatever it is. And I think we're seeing too many people in the visible leadership that are compromising for some of those reasons, and that's infor- unfortunate as well. No, absolutely. And I, I want to say this to whoever's listening, you know, out there that I got fired. I got my all of my speaking engagements canceled uh, for 2019. And that was it was painful. It hurts. But you you can survive. There's life on the other side. And there's a certain liberty that you feel once all of that weight is lifted off of you because they're, they're velvet handcuffs. You know, ultimately you to, to have a job. That is so important to you, so important to your sense of prestige and dignity that you can't imagine living without it. Yes, if if you have in your heart such a desire for that, you know that's what the what Jesus said: where your heart goes, there your treasures will follow. Right? I mean, so if um, uh, if that's what's so important to you, you're going to get to a point where you don't love God with all your heart, because uh, you know that that's not what God wants you to do. He, he, he did not put you in this situation to accumulate wealth or to accumulate prestige. And I, I think everything in Jesus Christ's ministry tells us he was not a man who wanted us to be chasing after institutions. And ultimately, I think what you're going to see this year, you're going to see a lot of upheaval in the Southern Baptist Convention and in other denominations, because now you're seeing large numbers of people who have nothing left to lose. You know, I really think that on the seminary campuses, for instance, you have a lot of people, a lot of the students who are kind of waking up and they're saying, why am I going to sit here and be quiet and go along to get along? What are the chances that I'll, I'm going to get as part of this circle of you know, the anointed? I'm never going to make it into those circles. So why am I running around trying to kiss up to them? Why am I trying to massage their egos? Uh, you know, they're they're giving me their they're, they're degree mills. I mean, a lot of the seminaries. So they're producing all of these people with PhDs and MDivs who don't have anywhere to work. And, you know, what are you hanging on for? That's what I want to tell people. What are you hanging on for? I had a student who called me and he was debating whether or not to fight something. And I said, get advice from a lot of people so that you're not just listening to me, but I'll give you my advice. OK, remember what Jesus Christ said. If this is what they do when the wood is green, imagine what they're going to do when the wood is dry. You know what I mean? That it's like uh, to, to stand up to a, a seminary administration when you are 20 years old and you have all this stuff in your life and you have nothing kind of rooted down yet 
to, to drag you down, that's a lot easier than to, I had to do it at 48 with two kids and a wife, you know, and a, a house and all the stuff that you have to do. That's a lot scarier. So I, I think that hopefully this year, what you'll see is people opening their eyes and seeing that they're not clinging to anything real when they cling to their good standing or the good graces of these denominations. What are you getting at? at it? I mean, why does it mean so much to you? I think the same thing would go for the people who work in missions. Uh, ultimately, you know, what are you clinging to? You're just you're afraid that you're not going to be able to get the next uh, mission trip or, or, or you're not going to be able to get an opportunity to do this church planning. Ultimately, you have to understand that the people at the top have a very small circle of people that they feel obligated to. And the 99% of the people in, in these denominations, you're never going to break in. You're never going to break in. So you might as well just be like Martin Luther and say, okay, you know, it's either this, what, what, what here I stand, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. like, you know, like, forget it. Why, why am I going to go kiss their ring anymore? You know, there was a certain point where I just said, I'm not going to kiss these people's rings. Yeah. You know, it, it's, you just can't anymore. Right. Right. So. You know, and, Speaking of kissing people's rings, I know you, you had mentioned earlier about Al Mohler running for president over, you know, of the SBC and all that. Kind oh of my stuff. gosh, horrible, horrible, horrible. Yeah. Please, please do not vote for this man. If you are in the Southern Baptist Convention, just let me just put it in the, in the most, in the kindest terms possible. He's the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. I mean, the Southern Baptist Seminary. Okay. If he's president of the Southern Baptist Convention, he gets to appoint the trustees who are supposed to oversee his seminary. That You should never have that much concentration of power and influence in one person's hands. And if you just look at his response to when the Conservative Baptist Network was founded, his response was to say, um, uh, oh, the real network is the Southern Baptist Convention. I'll see you there. Is that the kind of person who should have 15 million Southern Baptists under his care? Yeah. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. And during the time that he has been the president of Southern Baptist Seminary, Theological Seminary, that's the flagship school. He's undoubtedly the most influential man in uh, the convention. We've had all of these different divisions. We had the abuse crisis. We had the, um, the, the hemorrhaging of all of the people, the drop in baptisms, the drop in evangelism. We had the, the, the very poor mistake to pull out missions from Latin America. Um, so there's a lot of problems that happened during his clique's time in power. So I, I, I think that that's, I see that as the major deciding point for Orlando for the 2020 convention mm -hmm. of the Southern Baptists. If they reelect or if they elect El Moeller, um, then that's a sign that the institution can't self-correct yeah. and it has to implode. If, if they can find another alternative, maybe we can give this some more time. Um, but it would have to be somebody bold, and you're going to have to have someone who can I, – I think the ideal scenario is someone who can set up an independent commission to do a, an audit on all of the conflicts of interest and the nondisclosure and the retaliation and to ask for mass resignations. If there are trustees who have conflicts of interest that they have not really – uh, resolved. So, for instance, someone who's a trustee at a seminary, and then they're also a fellow for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and then they're also pastoring a church, 
and so they're running missions. That's too many. That's that's conflicts of interest. And there's so many qualified Southern Baptists who have the degrees who could fill some of these slots. They should not have that. And then as a result of those conflicts of interest, you have situations like Randy Stinson, who is the provost at Southwestern. He calls me in. He's not talking to me about any of the academic issues that he's supposed to oversee as a provost. And I serve under him in his capacity as provost. He's talking to me about things that the ERLC is upset about. Why? Because he's a fellow at the ERLC. So the ERLC can use him to, to quiet their critics. That's not appropriate. That's bad. That's how you get corruption in the whole denomination. So I think you need somebody who is really bold to get elected who can say, okay, we are going to do a full audit on all of these inappropriate connections, all of the nepotism, uh, the non-disclosure, uh, all of that, and uh, people should resign. If, if, if the audit comes back and it says, look, you're holding too many positions of power. If you look, are you familiar with what happened at Master's Seminary? When very, they, they got sus- very familiar, yes. Right. So if you look at the, the things that caused them to have their accreditation suspended, I think that the children of darkness should not have a higher standard of ethics than the children of light. Do you know what I'm saying? So I totally agree. If, 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 if it's inappropriate for John MacArthur to have his son-in-law appointed and to have uh, re- repressing people's freedom of speech and all these other things, then, then we should apply those same standards ourselves before outside people come in yeah. and apply them. We should apply them to ourselves. And, uh, and I think the other thing is discretion is not a biblical value. Yeah. Discretion is not a biblical value. Even with Matthew 18, okay, maybe you can kind of make case there. But no, 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 no. The openness and disclosure, is a, that, that is a biblical value. And uh, I don't know where they've gotten this idea that everything should be discreet, you know, that yeah. you should call up someone and only say things in private. You know, it, it's, it's not, that's not the way that we're going to be able to reform. Yeah. Well, you know, I, th- I think what's ended up happening is a lot of these guys that do have power and, and for, for whatever reason, a lot of it is either the mega churches or the followers of those mega churches, like the other pastors that have kind of mm-hmm. splintered off from right. them and that sort of thing. They all use these similar tactics of using Matthew 18 in order to quiet dissenters and quiet critics when that wasn't right. the way that it was supposed to be. Matthew 18 was supposed to be a quick thing that should happen. Like, honestly, like if it, that should be something that should be able to, you should be able to go through all the steps within a couple of weeks, but they drag it out into months, maybe even years before you even get through it. Mm-hmm. And by then it's too late. Like I know even dealing with uh, the whole MacArthur situation at masters. And I, that this is one of the things I'm going to get in trouble because all of the masters defenders are going to jump all over me because they like to follow me and whatever it is. But okay, the, the okay. one, the one, the one thing that I'll say about that is that they, they would always use intimidation in order to silence opposition. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of their leadership try to do this towards me when I first started out on Twitter a couple of years ago. And, you know, they were trying to silence me through intimidation. And, you know, there, there was one guy that was that was actually showing up at places where I was before posting on, on an anonymous account, taking pictures where they knew I was the day before to let me know that they had access to me. Like, the thing is, is that, like, they were using intimidation to try to silence me. And I've been hearing Bye. a lot of other people you know, complaining about the seminary and that there is this intimidation that they hold this over you and they find any way they can to silence you. And the same thing is to a certain degree happening with the SBC. It's a very similar tactic that's going on. Like mm-hmm. this has no place in Christianity. Like we should no, be not, able to debate not. this and have open discussion, yeah. not like yeah. you disagree. Yeah. We're, we're going to silence you. 
Well, I'll, I'll send you the resolution that I sent that was rejected by the same resolutions committee that passed res, uh, resolution nine. There were four things I said that we should denounce and stop doing retaliation, uh, yeah. gentlemen's agreements, um, non-disclosure agreements, and uh, there was another one, uh, but like gentlemen's agreements, we shouldn't have that. And non-disclosure agreements, we shouldn't have that. But you know, I, I saw, for instance, you're talking about intimidation tactics, I saw one of the articles that ran in response to the founding of the Conservative Baptist Network, and they said, oh, I can't be part of this because they're not disclosing their funding. Okay, I know exactly what that is. They're trying to bully people into disclosing who's funding them so that their mob of, of, of flying attack bats can go after uh, the funders and put pressure on them. And then they'll figure out where those people go to church. They'll put pressure on them in their church. They'll try to put pressure on them at their jobs, etc. This is not Christian behavior, but it's commonplace. It is very, very commonplace. And you're right. People do misrepresent the, the spirit of First Peter or of First Timothy or of Matthew 18. They, they misrepresent what those things were. Matthew 18 is supposed to be, I go to you <clears throat> because you're my brother, and I tell you I have a problem. And if you don't respond to me, then I bring two witnesses. And then if you don't respond to me, then I go to the church. Okay. All of these cases with people in power, we've all done that where we go, we try to follow the, the correct procedure. They, they don't respond to our emails or they don't, they won't engage us in private conversation. So then you bring two witnesses, they blow that off and then you go to the, you go to the public and yeah, you can be strong in your wording. I think you can be very firm. You can be very convictional and very clear um, and uncompromising. When you say, this is the issue that I had with this person, and I'm, I, I want the, the, the church to be warned. I want the flock to know that this is a problem because uh, the kingdom is at stake. You know, and, and these things don't belong to us. This belongs to God. God has um, given us this opportunity to be in a position where we're taking care of these things. Yeah, and, and, I, think, and I think to a certain degree as well, there, there's kind of a problem with this mega church mentality. And mm -hmm. it's like this centralizing of of power. And we see this with the denominations. We see this with certain mega churches and that sort of thing. And I think to a certain degree, part of the problem is just you have these like celebrity pastors or celebrity evangelical leaders, and they just garner all this power, all this control. When God never intended for that when he was setting up his churches, like his churches, like church, church used to be people meeting at homes. Those weren't mega churches, right. you know, where the, yeah. you're actually going through life with your pastor. You're actually like mm -hmm. you, if you have a problem with your pastor, you have access to him and you can go talk to him and that sort of thing. It's not a church of mm -hmm. 10,000 people where then you turn around yeah. and you're like, sorry, you're, you're not big enough and important enough to come, you know, confront our pastor. You know, it's like, right. I feel like that's kind of a problem even with the SBC is it's so big, so massive. There's so much influence and power that's going on. How is Joe Schmo, who's a part of the SBC, is supposed to address Al Mohler and say, hey, you, what you're doing is unbiblical. It's like you're too far removed to actually have a right. voice. Well, and what happened was the Al Mohlers of the world uh, were in a position where they didn't have to care if there was somebody who was upset in the pews somewhere in First Baptist anywhere, Tennessee or something. They, they could just blow off those complaints. And then when it came to a point where there were enough people who were angry and they got organized and you had the Capstone Report and you had Pulpit and Pen and you have John uh, Harris and, and, and Judd Saul and all these people publicizing this, all of a sudden Al Mohler cares. You know, I mean, that's the way this system is supposed to work. That's what Jesus gave us the guideline is you know, if the person just blows you off, 
for year after year, then at some point they're going to be made to care because everything will come to light. Every, you know, everything is going to, to, to be known. It will be revealed. Uh, so <clears throat> I think that is a problem. I think the mega churches are a huge dilemma for us because churches have become, I mean, they've become business. I mean, uh, in, in, in a certain sense. And I, I, I have mixed feelings. I mean, maybe I don't have mixed feelings. I have clear feelings. I just don't know necessarily how to articulate them. I, I think if you've been called to pastor, I think that you need to be in a position to accept some poverty. I mean, I think if, if, if it becomes the source of so much income that <clears throat> you're living a lavish life and to be able to maintain it, you have to continue to get in these big donations. I, I think that the temptations are going to be too great yeah. for it, you know, and the money is as big of a problem as the sex abuse, mm-hmm. if not bigger. Right. What? Well, yeah. And, yeah. you know, and the one thing I was going to say, too, is like because we're kind of talking about like Matthew 18 and all that kind of stuff is when Jesus was confronting the Pharisees, he didn't follow Matthew, Matthew 18. He went straight to the people and he didn't even and he didn't even necessarily go to their faces. He went straight to the people and said, see these yeah. guys over here. They're a bunch of hypocrites and liars and woe to them. <laughs> he didn't That's go. True. He didn't go to the true. Pharisees privately first and say, you guys, I've got a problem with you. Oh, you guys are rejecting that. Let me bring a couple of my disciples yeah. who saw this. Like he right. didn't go through those steps. He went straight to the people and said, don't follow them. So why can't we do that? Is my question. Yeah. Well, I think that we can. I think that we can. I think that for years I was never willing to do it because I always was hanging on to one thing or other. And I I was just scared because I didn't know what it was going to be like to be outside of the institutional fold. But hey, there was a point where I said, okay, I'm going to do it. I will call names. I will uh, I will speak to the public about what is going wrong. And you know what? You survive and. Uh, you can do it, but it's it's just hard. It's not what people are used to doing, and and that's why the denominations have gotten uh, to become a problem. I, but I do think that we're we're about to witness something similar to what happened in Luther's time. But like I said, whereas during Luther's time it meant people splitting away from the Catholic Church and then splitting away from churches, I think in this one it's going to be a splinter from this church and a splinter from that church and a splinter from that church. And we're going to become the body of Christ again. Yeah. Because I think that all of these different remnants from these different denominations are ultimately going to feel righteously that they don't have a denomination, that they're homeless, and that their only brotherhood is with these um, unofficial ties to other people who have also taken a stand uh, for the gospel. Yeah. So yeah. I think the I, I don't I don't know which issues you think are going to be the hot button ones. I think the LGBT issue is going to be a major one because it's just such an obvious one coming. And, and I think the way that people in power have tried to tap tiptoe and tap dance around the issue, it's, just, it's not working anymore. I think there are enough people in the pews who are dealing with the sexual confusion in their family and in their communities. And so they're not in the mood anymore to you know, entertain these halfway solutions or, or, um, you know, those kinds of things. I'm sorry. It's gotten so dark. You know what no. happened? <laughs> Jeff, the sunset, the yeah. sunset. Well, over, I'm going to turn the light on. I can turn the overhead light on. So it's not like this, this, uh, spotlight on me. I feel like I look like I'm, you know, I'm a bunker. I feel, I feel like I'm not. interrogating you or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let, let me just, let me just, yeah. That's probably a lot better. That's yeah. probably a lot better. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, like, well, like one, one thing I wanted to ask you too is kind of going, going along with that with like the hot button issues. Yeah. But 
is there's been this consistent over the last couple of years push to the left and Mm -hmm. like progressive uh, political ideologies have, have really infiltrated the church and the SBC. And I feel like, you know, guys like Al Mohler, like I went to the, I've been to the shepherds conference twice, heard him speak. He was, he was always one of my favorite speakers when he was there, always very articulate. He was always seen as like the conservative voice within Christianity and, you know, things like that. But I feel like there's been this push left from a lot of these guys that we've traditionally seen as conservative. What do you, what do you think as somebody who's been kind of like on the inside and seen things from that side of things? What do you think has really contributed to that where a lot of these guys that we've all looked up to over the years as sound Mm -hmm. theologically, why are they all of a sudden now embracing these leftist ideologies that just a few years ago they were totally opposed to? I think that they just don't like being ostracized and marginalized. Um, You know, the, the idea that you are a persona non grata with the Washington Post and with the entire establishment of the universities is so painful to them that they just can't. And um, I think some of them very deliberately decided to compartmentalize and they said, I'm going to make these compromises even though that doesn't match what I believe. I think others probably they started to have to cope with the compromises that they made. And so they internalized the, the false propaganda that they were spouting to justify what they were doing. But I mean, you're from California, you know how painful it is when your beliefs make it so that you're just, you know, no one will respect you anywhere in the press. So I think the, the, what we're seeing is because of the fact that the liberal um, infiltration into the culture has gone so far and it's become so extreme, we're now seeing the repercussion in the churches. Well, I'm working on this piece. I hope I can get it done tonight about what's happening in the Southern Baptist Convention. I think we have to recall what happened in American history. Okay. Um, The very first English speaking settlers came to North America because they wanted to plant churches. They wanted to found churches. They were fleeing the religious uh, persecution in England. So it started with liberty in a religious sense. Then they saw that the political structure was still going to hamper them, and they had to resolve that, so we had the American Revolution. And then from there, during the time of the American Revolution, that's when the newspaper business really started booming. And then, of course, after the Civil War, the newspapers were bought up by huge corporations. So then um, liberty became much stronger in the sense of there was a, a media component of it as well, a mouthpiece. Now, there were a lot of problems with the media, but that happened. So you you see, it starts with religion, then it went to politics, and then it went to culture. The left wing, when they pushed back, starting at the turn of 20th century, they started at the fringes with the media, then they took over the politics, and then the last thing that they could take over was religion. So what we're seeing is basically the left wing has reclaimed all of the the terrain that the pro-liberty movement, the, the, the voice of humanity wanting to be truly free and wanting to be truly free in the eyes of God, uh, what they had accomplished over hundreds of years, the left has kind of done in a, in a faster sequence. But I think that we're seeing now 
that um, when they were taking over culture, a lot of conservatives just they assumed that the political sphere was never going to become consumed by the left. And then now we see that the Democratic Party is absolutely extreme and the Republican Party is a mix. There's a few people who are conservative holdouts and there's just a lot of people who uh, would sell their conservative grandmother for a nickel, you know, if, if it meant getting reelected. So, yeah. um, and, and so as we watched the left wing really take over politics and move everything left, they thought that the churches were fine. Well, now what you're seeing that the churches are not fine. Um, and the left is definitely taking over there. So I think you have people who are in power in these churches, these, these stalwart conservatives, and they're being tossed back and forth by the culture and then the politics and then the ramifications for the church. And it makes sense given the society that we were born into. We were born into a free society that came about because of the way that it started with the churches, then it went to politics, and then it went to culture. Um, you know, now, obviously, that, that's all being broken down um, in, in reverse order. Yeah. Well, how, now, realistically, how did, how did they – how did they how were they able to really take over Christianity? Because I feel like that's the question that a lot of people have is like when because I because I talk about this a lot. I know a lot of other people talk mm-hmm. about this. And the thing that's always thrown at us is that's just a conspiracy theory. You really think somebody's going to be able to take over politics or take over Christianity is it, it's just like this. It just happens to happen because people are becoming more progressive or whatever it is. But I feel like a lot, of, a lot of people are seeing like, oh, no, this seems to be a lot more intentional, especially when you follow money, especially when you follow, you know, who's involved mm-hmm. with all these different things. So what can we point to where it's like, no, this is like an intentional takeover within Christianity? Yeah, the, I would start with the American Academy of Religion. Look at their tax documents. Look at their uh, conference lineups. I, I have published articles uh, on the American Academy of Religion. That's a perfect example. That is a massive academic uh, trade union, or not, not a trade union, but it's a, it's a, an academic professional association that brings together all of the ordination and, and divinity programs in the country, places like Yale, Princeton, etc. So that group <clears throat> meets, and um, they mix their influence with the theological seminaries. Okay, and obviously something like Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary cannot push back against Harvard Divinity School, Yale Divinity School, Princeton, Duke. I mean, those the latter group has so much more money. And then if you look at what the American Academy of Religion does, they have partnerships with the FBI. In 2017, they had this big conference at Harvard. It was off-site from where the Boston conference was happening. And they were talking about 25 years of collaboration with the FBI because they were on this uh, uh, program, this domestic counterterrorism program, to combat religious extremism in the United States. Now, originally that meant fighting against groups like the Branch Davidians in Waco, but eventually, if you look at the scholars that are in this consortium and how they're working with the FBI, um, they're really targeting strong conservative Christian churches because they look at, for instance, anti-LGBT issues as domestic terrorism or as a sign that somebody might become a right-wing extremist. So you're talking about the churches have been subject to institutional pressure because the whole means by which people get ordained and they get into the pastorate, etc., all of that is in one way or another being shaped by the divinity programs and uh, the divinity schools, 
which are all under this academic association, which allows for the secular concerns to put a lot of pressure on people who are in the area of theology. And if you have that, you know, for instance, the partnership with the FBI and, and the Harvard Divinity School and the American Academy of Religion, that goes back to the early 90s. So you're talking about two generations. Yeah, you're going to get into a situation where a lot of the people who show up at your church, it starts with the youth pastors, it starts with the secretaries, the people running vacation Bible school or the nursery. They're going to come in with increasingly liberal ideas. And you have all of the resources, all of the top scholars and the top counterintelligence experts who have been working on uh, the propaganda and the rhetoric to justify this in Christian terms. So they, they can talk a good game. They can use a lot of very extensive vocabulary that intimidates people. So they convince people of things like the crime of Sodom was not at all related to homosexuality. Instead, it was because they were inhospitable, because they take that line from Ezekiel 16. And they repeat this again and again and again until you have people who earnestly believe in the inerrancy of the Bible, but who have come to believe that that's what the Bible says. And they show up and they're running your office. They have the password to your church computer. They're running the vacation Bible school, the nursery school. And then eventually when the old pastor who came about in an earlier age is gone, now they have to have a search committee to find a new pastor. And you end up with a scenario like at Naples, First Baptist Naples, where, okay, like who are you going to bring in to replace the old pastor? Where are you going to find a, 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 a pastor who got ordained um, and who has um, the, the necessary degree to be able to run your church who doesn't in some way reflect this crazy liberal, you know, the orthodoxy. Yeah. Because you have to figure, think of a place like Duke Divinity School, which has a lot of influence within the American Academy of Religion. If you're a professor of theology in the Duke Divinity School, your tenure case and your performance reviews are being reviewed by your dean, and then they're being reviewed by the provost and the administration of all of Duke. So at the early stages, yes, you're being reviewed by other people who are in the field of theology. After that, <clears throat> the people who say whether you get to stay, whether you get tenure, whether you get promoted, or whether you get a raise, all of those people are people who don't have any connection whatsoever to Christianity. And that's the majority of the divinity programs in the United States, or at least within the American Academy of Religion, are, are from those types of scenarios. So do you understand that? That's how the churches, there were all kinds of portals for which this influence could come through. And then if you look at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, this is the best example um, in the Southern Baptist Convention. This, this is a small and not terribly necessary part of the SBC that was supposed to be uh, representing Southern Baptist values in Washington. So its whole reason for being was it, it was supposed to be a means by which Southern Baptists could show the world their belief system and their values. And then somehow now it's flowing in the reverse direction where this is a portal by which outside groups can change what Southern Baptists believe. Do you know, and that largely lies at the feet of Russell Moore. I mean, he is someone who has single-handedly done extensive damage um, in the Southern Baptist Convention because of the fact that that's how the ERLC now functions. It, it, it's a way for outside political groups to come in and to try to change the way that, that Southern Baptists uh, think and, and their belief systems. You know, and they think that they're doing a righteous job. They think that they're pushing them away from racist beliefs or pushing them away from sexist or abusive beliefs. But really, in the end, 
that's another uh, weak spot. It's another Achilles heel where the outside world can insert its influence. And it's, it creeps in, but it is very, very organized. And that is why it's no coincidence that we're having this conversation largely as we look at the denominations and what's happening at those denominations, because denominations offer the left wing this massive structure that if they can unlock the code and figure out how to get people in, in power in certain places, then they get the whole kit and caboodle. You know what I mean? They yep. get the whole uh, um, prize. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, like, like you were saying, too, like that was the thing about the ERLC is they were supposed to be taking, again, like conservative Christian values – and bring it out into the world. Like, we're supposed to be a light shining in darkness. Like, to me, that mm-hmm. that should be the representation of what the, ER, the ERLC is going to be about. But the problem is, is, like, you look at all the events they put on, it's all for educating the Southern Baptists. It's all for educating Christians, it seems like, on all these progressive ide- ideologies, you know? Right, and, and, yeah. And, and why, why, does, why, why does he choose the speakers that he chooses, and why does he not choose the speakers that he doesn't choose? There's no real rhyme or reason to it. Robert Gagnon um, is a very established and well-respected authority on the issue of homosexuality in the Bible. Why was he not offered a a speaking position at the ERLC's conference in 2014, but instead J.D. Greer was? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Or or why was Sam Alberry brought in um, and and not people like me or other uh, people who had come out of homosexuality and had successfully built heterosexual marriages? Well, you know, uh, you know, they they had, I guess, Rosaria Butterfield and some other people like that. But, you know, they they didn't have anybody who was willing to go up there and say, yes, you can take your thoughts captive. And through deliberate behavioral choices, you can actively, with the Lord's help, get away from homosexuality and get towards heterosexuality. That was taboo in the ERLC. They only want to have people like Rosaria Butterfield go there and say the Holy Spirit will deliver you. But you have to sit passively and wait for God to move. You can't do it any of it on your own, which, you know, it's just that, that, of course, God wants you to do things and make decisions and, and you know, uh, try to draw, you know, follow his rules. I mean, you know, obviously um, yeah. he wants you to do that. He doesn't want you to just sit around and complain about the fact that you're gay and, and wait for some out, outside force to change you. So um, <clears throat> those are all examples, I think, of, particularly with the ERLC, but similar bodies to that or similar portals by which the outside world gets in and starts uh, changing, tinkering with what Southern Baptists believe. Yeah. Well, and I, th- and I think it's very telling, too, when they platform Sam Alberry and then they silence you. To me, yeah, to me, it's, it's, it's that, obvious. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that comparison right there is very telling to the ideology that they're trying to promote. Well, or even better yet, Karen Swallow Pryor and I went to the same graduate program. Mm-hmm. Somebody wrote an article about that at the it, um, uh, Enemies Within the Church. They, they went and tracked down where we had gone to graduate school, and they looked at our dissertations, and they said, this is very interesting. They both got PhDs from the State University of New York at Buffalo uh, in English. They both did dissertations on the 18th and 19th century. So they're both basically English PhDs who came from the secular world uh, into the Southern Baptist Convention, She's getting hired by Southeastern. I'm getting fired uh, by Southwestern. So what gives? I mean, what would be the basis for that? And uh, I think that people looked at it. They they researched what we had both written. And on every single issue, she was more liberal than I was. Every single issue from immigration, even though I'm a person of color and she's white, that that doesn't matter. See, that, that stuff 
they'll throw that out when it comes to their politics, you know, or, or when it comes to their interests. So you see that, and, and she was an ERLC fellow. Um, the ERLC, would, they, they weren't going to, I tried to write to them. They're not going to engage me in conversation. And in fact, uh, in one of the meetings, the provost at Southwestern told me he had spoken to them and they, they didn't have a high opinion of me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you look at that, there has to be a rationale for why you would platform Karen Swallow Pryor and then be hostile to me. And it can't just be, well, you know, Russell Moore likes one person, doesn't like the other. There should be a biblical reason for it. And very often decisions like that now, they don't have biblical reasons for it. And that spills over into who they hire, who they put in positions of power, who they publish. Because remember, Lifeway is part of all this as well. Even though they closed all 170 of their retail stores, I mean, they're still very much in in the mix of this. Who do they publish? Who do they not publish? Who do they promote aggressively? Who who do they not? Right, right. So I I I think the ultimate question, I think, you know, because we've discussed a lot of these details and a lot of what's going on, and I feel like we could keep going for hours and never run out of information. Yeah. But I think the ultimate question comes down to is, what do we do now? Because, because like, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of us, and, I, and the thing that I've noticed about the pushback against social justice and against the leftism and stuff that's been infiltrating into the church is it's mostly the lay people that are realizing it. But then a lot of them are becoming very disheartened because they're looking at their local pastors and their denominational leaders, and it seems like they're failing them left and right and not willing to take a stand. So the majority of the people that are like watching my podcast are going to be the lay people. Mm-hmm. What are we supposed to do? Because we know what the problem is. We're identifying the problem. Mm-hmm. We see, okay, Al Mohler's a problem. Russell Moore is a problem. The Southern Baptist Convention as a whole, in general, the leadership is a problem. Mm-hmm. What, what do we do now? Well, I think the main thing that you have to do is you have to um, – strike at them where they will feel it the most, which is their public image. I think it is important for people out there in the laity to support people like you, people like me, others who are coming forward on whatever platforms they have. If they have small platforms, support them financially and in other ways so that their platforms become big platforms. If they already have a big platform like pulpit and pen, support them so that they can you know, reach as far and as wide as possible. But as much as you can disseminate the truth that's the one weapon that we have that they will never be able to counter because the truth is on our side in this they have not run the denomination well we know it we can prove it and the question is um, if the lady can come forward and make it so that people can can speak the truth speak out disseminate the information and survive the backlash because you're, you're looking at, like, so for instance, me, I got fired. You know, so <clears throat> you have to be able to have systems to back up and to support those people who come forward. Because, you know, when they retaliate against you, it's total. You lose your speaking engagements. They try to get you kicked out of your church. They try to separate your friends, your family from you, etc. But the lady can do tremendous good <clears throat> by supporting and helping people like <clears throat> Like, let's say you, you know, the fact that you're you're having me on here, the fact that you have people on here to speak, you can bet that the people in power in the SBC, um, they're, they're going to get nervous as you bring people on and as you're, you're exposing more and more of their information. Uh, the more uh, readership that you get, the more that they can see online that your, your work is circulating, the, the more they're going to feel the pressure. 
That's what the laity can do. I'm going to be very honest with you, Jeff. I've given up on trying to get pastors to mobilize. There's a couple pastors I know who are really great, but even the best pastors I know, this is just not what they signed up for. They're, they're not comfortable doing it. They have too many compromises or, or too many obligations or friendships or relationships that they can't, um, uh, jeopardize. And there are too many people in their congregations who ultimately are going to, to stop supporting them financially if they make too much trouble. So the pastors are, as bad as it, this may sound, the pastors are not really um, the group of people who are going to be able to lead us through this, unfortunately. I wish that they were, um, and if some come forward, I really want to support them. But I think that for, for the most part, you are going to get frustration. I think you should contact your pastor, have a conversation with them. Just don't expect much more than them saying, wow, you know, I'm really concerned. Yeah, that's awful. And then being noncommittal. Um, I have gotten responses from pastors that uh, were so demoralizing, but I just got used to it after a while. I remember one said, I want to speak the truth in love, but for right now I have to lean more on the side of love. Mm-hmm. I mean, what, what the, that you're a pastor and that's your, okay, but I, I just, you have to just back away. You know, they have to do funerals. They have to do hospital visits. They have to marry people and do baptisms. They have to keep the lights on and uh, they have to run vacation Bible school and they have to come up with a sermon that is going to speak to a 75 to 150 people every Sunday. And, you know, um, so they have a lot of other stuff. But I think traditionally we have wanted pastors to come forward and be a strong voice. And, and maybe that's just not, I mean, what do you think? What, what do you think is the best thing to do? I mean, at, at this point, I, it's, it's hard because I feel like for me looking at, looking at churches and the consistent theme is it's the people sitting in the pews that sees the problem. And you have all these, you have all these pastors that are in positions of power, it, whether it's a small church, big church, whatever it is, and they refuse to take a stand. And at a certain point, it's like, okay, so you could try to fix the problem with, from within, but a lot of times the, it's the pastor and the elders are all on the same team. They all, they all agree with each other. They're, they're not going to change because they care more about attracting the world and bringing them in and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. You could leave the church, but then where do you go? And a lot of people mm-hmm. and a lot of the lay people don't feel like they're qualified to start a church because they have it trained in their mind that – you have to go to seminary first. You have to have a, a theological degree. If you don't have that degree, you're not qualified to be a pastor. And so it's this mm-hmm. kind of conundrum of this elitism and uh, and that sort of thing that I think is really stunting the church. When in reality, mm-hmm. we, we look at the disciples. They were all blue-collar guys. I Virtually right, none yeah. of them, maybe a handful of them had any sort of training or educational anything. Mm-hmm. They were all blue-collar guys, fishermen, like – People that work with their hands, they were the ones mm-hmm. that started the church. So what, what's stopping the random layperson from starting the church? And I right. and I feel like yeah. that may be the next step is taking away a lot of the the academic theological side of things and just yeah. get local, start a local church. Fifteen people, twenty people does it like you don't have to be going for a, having a building. Meet in your yeah. living room. And- yeah, and have bivocational, you know, uh, uh, people who are, are pastoring the church that I think you can get together, you can worship together. And uh, if you feel like there are a lot of social ties that bind you to your existing church and you have a pastor who doesn't want to fight, uh, you know, go for Sunday sermons, you know, and um, it, here's one thing. 
instead of giving your tithes to the church, start giving them to Jeff Dornick or some other person who has a podcast, you know, tithe uh, that way. And, you know, and if that creates problems at your church, I mean, that's, you're doing something, you know, you're doing something by, by, you know, making it clear that you want to advance the kingdom. And this is part of what advancing the kingdom is. And uh, somebody who is not going to fight a, a battle that's right there, then, you know, maybe you should make them feel the the consequence of them not not fighting it. So I think there's that middle ground because I know a lot of people who just don't want to leave their church. Yeah. Um, you know, and I have a wife, for instance, who is, you know, she really loves the church that we're in. So it, even if I wanted to um, uh, leave, uh, I really probably couldn't. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Um, but, but you can, and, and I have great friends there. So I, I think I'm going to, you know, I'm going to keep on going on Sunday. But I think there's other days in the week where instead of going to the Wednesday meeting at that church, maybe I can do something else, do something different, get organized. Um, and, uh, and and so I think th- those are ways that lay people can do it. And maybe you can look into planting a church. I like the idea of just meeting in somebody's living room, um, you know, and, 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 and really spending your time in the word uh, and, and helping each other. And um, that's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, because because I, I I know like when when I was when I was in college and I was taking a, a a New Testament class and there was like six of us that were in the class right and and we would meet once a week for like three hours and we would just really dive into God's word and the thing that we kept saying was this feels more like what we wish church would be like than actually going to church is like we're literally just sitting around talking to each other around a small little table sharing mm-hmm. this is what when we were studying god's word this is what we found out we actually get down to okay what does the greek say what does this say what does this say and it was like this is actual like bible study and then we and then we talk and we converse it's not just stick a guy up up, up on a platform have a great rock band mm-hmm. and that's church you know i feel like right. we kind of yeah. need to go through life together to a certain degree and that's i think what's missing a lot right now yeah i mean a lot of times they're gonna uh you know people who are strongly into the conventional model will say, well, you have small groups within your church. But I mean, the thing about that is if you're putting all of your effort in small groups, those small groups are still under the authority of that pastor. Right. And so, and if, so if the pastor says, we're not going to go into the fight, then those small groups are probably going to be filled with people who also don't want to go into the fight. They're going to hold back. Yeah. So you have to be realistic about that. Yeah. And then one last question that I did want to ask you is you had said earlier, okay. don't vote for Al Mohler. Okay. Who, who, who are you recommending that people vote for? for I president? think that right now, well, right now it's just Randy Adams and Al Mohler. Mm-hmm. Um, right. I haven't heard of anyone else being thrown into the fray. I, I would really like uh, to see a lot of other options. I, I would definitely go for Randy. If it's between Randy Adams and Al Mohler, I, I would go for Randy Adams. I've looked at his platform, and um, from what I can tell, he is very serious about tackling the corruption and the institutional mismanagement. So that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would definitely say that um, if you want to see change in the Southern Baptist Convention, if you don't like the direction it's going in, um, L. Moeller is not going to be able to reverse course on any of this. He has just too many obligations to too many people. Um, and, uh, you're not going to see anything, uh, move. Yeah. So definitely. So then, you know, as we're wrapping up, if people want to follow you and keep up more on what's going on and what you're talking about and all that kind of stuff, Mm -hmm. how, how can they do that? How do you, how do you recommend that people are keep Uh, up on what you're doing? 
BobbyLopez.me. Now, I, I, have, I, I have to feed my family, so I've been having to take on work. So, you know, I can't always do as much on the website as I want to. But on the weeks that I can, there's a lot of great stuff that gets on there um, during the week. But, yeah, BobbyLopez.me. Okay, perfect. Definitely. That oh. sounds good. So, yeah, everybody, you know, follow Bobby. Keep up on what okay. he's doing. Support, support him how you can. Because, I mean, again, in reality, he, t- he, took, he took a stand on principle and on an issue that a lot of people have refused to take. And we need more people that are willing to do it. But we, as the believers who see the problem, we need to be supporting those that are taking a stand and have taken a hit in all reality for us. So right. definitely support Bobby, you know, follow him and all that kind of stuff. And, and again, Bob, thanks, thanks so much for coming on here. I really appreciate it. You know, I enjoy, yeah, I enjoy thanks, the talk. Well- We'll stay in touch, Jeff. That's I've really gotten uh, to enjoy getting to know you. So definitely, thank yeah. you very much. And then for everybody else that's watching as well, uh, don't forget we've got the Destroy Social Justice Conference coming up into this week. Uh, we've got a great lineup: GatekeepersOnline.com/slash/DestroySocialJustice. And uh, yeah, tune tune in next time. This holiday season, pay tribute to the people who fought for our freedom to celebrate. Featuring the largest American flag in the region, Spirit Park is now open at National Harbor, honoring active duty military and veterans. Take some time this holiday to remember, offer gratitude, and be inspired by the sacrifices of our service men and women who make our way of life possible. Plan your visit at nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. That's nationalharbor.com slash spiritpark. You can live a long, healthy life if you're HIV positive. With the current treatments, we can get patients down to being undetectable. The array of options is so much greater today. U equals U. Undetectable equals untransmittable. If someone who's HIV positive, they're taking their medication, they're undetectable, they're not able to pass HIV to their partners. Do it for you, Montgomery County. Your HIV treatment is their prevention. Get more information at doitforyoumc.org.